All right, welcome to day 185 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16, through the end of chapter 9, Psalm 80, and then Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. All right, now one thing that's a little tricky about this point in 2 Kings uh, slash the history of Israel, uh, in particular, the tricky thing is that in the northern kingdom, you have a king named Jehoram, who is sometimes called Joram, and uh, you also have a king named Ahaziah. We've seen both of them so far. Uh, In the southern kingdom, you also have a Jehoram slash Joram and an Ahaziah. Um, And then, moreover, just to uh, confuse people a little bit, we're also going to see another Jehoshaphat, although uh, he's, he himself is not a king. Um, now, the reason for this is probably because uh, there is uh, some sort of an alliance between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and just how voluntary that alliance was for the south is not entirely clear. Um, but um, Jehoshaphat, the, a good king in the south, um, ends up naming his son Jehoram, and then marrying him to Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. Okay, so um, that means, if you're following me, that Jehoram is named after his brother-in-law. Okay, and then Jehoram and Athaliah have a kid, and they name him after the other king who was a son of Ahab, Ahaziah. And so Ahaziah is named after his uncle. To put it another way, uh, Jehoram, Ahaziah, and Athaliah are all kids, are all Ahab's kids, and they are, uh, you know, brother and sister. And then Athaliah marries a guy who's named after her brother, and then they name their son after her other brother. So that's where the confusion arrives. When you're actually reading it, it's not always that hard to figure out who is uh, being spoken of. But it is something to be aware of, um, and just having it, having it explained, I know, uh, cleared some things up for me. So, in the fifth year of Joram, who is sometimes called Jehoram, uh, who is a king in the north, the son of Ahab, um, while Jehoshaphat is still king in Ju- Judah, Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, uh, begins to reign. In other words, there is a co-regency, and this is a... A uh, very popular tactic throughout the history of the world, where if you want to secure the secession, that is, if you don't want pe- rival claimants to the throne, and we saw this with with when David passed away, right, with Solomon as well, then you would anoint your king, your son, to be king before you die, and then you live however many more years you live. And in this case, it appears that uh, Jehoshaphat lived um, four to five years after. Jehoram had been made king, so there was a co-regency in the in the south in in Jerusalem, and uh, he ends up reigning eight years in Jerusalem, and again due to this marriage alliance that has been formed with this daughter of Ahab and this close alliance with the south, um, he is actually an evil king. Uh, he walks in the way of the kings of Israel, um, and does evil in the sight of Yahweh. And yet, as we will be increasingly told, Yahweh does not destroy Judah. 
um, for the sake, and he does it, he withholds his judgment, and particularly from bringing down the house of wicked kings, um, because of the sake of David his servant, because of the Davidic covenant. And one way that it is phrased is to give him a, a lamp to, um, to him and his sons forever. Another way in which uh, Jehoram's reign is problematic is also politically. So Edom had been subservient to Judah for quite some time. We saw that they got Edom got pulled out when Jerusalem was called to arms to help Jehoram against the Moabite rebellion, the one with King Mesha, and we looked at the Mesha inscription. Well, here now, Edom uh, is like, all right, enough of this, and they revolt and try to set up their their own king rather than perhaps the one who is favorable towards uh, towards Jerusalem. And Joram uh, tries to uh, quell this rebellion, but he's unsuccessful, and the Edomites repel him. Not only that, but we're also told that uh, Libna revolted during this time. And this is interesting because Libna is actually an Israelite city. It's a, it's a, it's a Levitical city, according to Joshua 21.13, um, and that, uh, that, that, that is in the territory of Judah. So he loses one of his own cities. There's some kind of mutiny uh, there. And then he, he dies, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So again, this is Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, uh, and Athaliah, uh, who is named after his uncle, the son of Ahab. And so in the twelfth year of Joram, who is also called Jehoram, we've seen him called Jehoram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah um, of, of Judah, of the line of David, begins to reign. And he only reigns for one year, and we're about to find out why. But immediately he is, like his father, a religious failure, does not lead the people in following the Lord. Instead, again, walks in the way of the house of Ahab, not a huge surprise there, and does evil in the sight of Yahweh. Uh, And here, Queen Athaliah um, seems to have become queen mother at this time. Notice that the mention of his mother, even though it's kind of useless because we already know who his mother is. Um... So that's likely what that indicates there. Now, during this time, uh, the Jehoram is still reigning in the north, um, and verse 28 tells us that he decides to make war against Hazael. We met Hazael yesterday. He's this usurper of the Aramean throne of Damascus. He decides to re-engage him and try to retake remote Gilead. Remember, that's the city where Ahab had been killed back in 1 Kings 22. And so despite this time of apparent peace between Damascus and Israel, uh, Jehoram decides to break that now and attempt to overthrow uh, the, the Aramean grip on remote Gilead. And he's wounded during this, and he's taken to Jezreel to heal of his wounds. And his ally, Ahaziah, the king of Jerusalem in the south, goes to Jezreel to be with Jehoram as he uh, as uh, he deals with his injuries there. <clears throat> and while they're both there, um, Elisha the prophet um, uh, follows through on yet one of the other things that Elijah was instructed to do. And so remember how we've observed that Elisha is often seen acting through intermediaries, and here is no exception. 
So he appoints one of the sons of the prophets to go to um, the battle of remote Gilead and to find the commander Yehu, and this is where you see that other Jehoshaphat. So Yehu is the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. Yehu, however, is a northern Israelite. He is not a... um, um, this obviously is not the Jehoshaphat who was the king of the of the south, but he is to go there and to anoint him as king over Israel. And then as soon as he's done, he needs to get out of Dodge. So the, um, the, the son of the prophet goes there and uh, he, um, he brings out Yehu by himself. And they, uh, they go into the house and, at, and, at, and when they go in, uh, you know, privately, uh, he pours the oil on his head. He anoints him and says, "Thus, thus says Yahweh: I anoint you king over the people of Yahweh over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of Yahweh." This, by the way, does in fact confirm that her attempts at establishing Baalism as the religion of the official state religion of the Northern Kingdom did involve even violence against those who sought to worship Yahweh instead, who sought to worship the Lord instead. And um, this, of course, then will make Ahab like the previous dynasties um, in in Israel. And uh, interestingly, it calls it the House of Ahab. It's actually the House of Omri, of course. Um, but then the, its fate will be like the fate of Jeroboam's house or like the, the, the fate of Baasha's house. So um, he comes back, and at first he they're, they're like, what did this mad fellow uh, say to you? And he's like, oh, you know this guy and his talk. He's always talking. And then they press him, and then all of a sudden he erupts in this zeal. Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says Yahweh, I anoint you king over Israel. And then, and then, like, it's off to the races with Yehu. And um, he receives immediate support. And it's kind of amazing, like, anybody he goes to in Israel uh, immediately throws their support behind him. So, uh, first off, as soon as he says that, everyone, all the other commanders there, um, take off their garment, put it under him, um, and bl- and they blow the trumpet and proclaim him king. Um, and the reason he, perhaps the reason so many military guys are so quick to follow him is because Jehoram's reign has not been good for Israel. Um, and uh, what, how much of this involved, you know, them wanting to go back to the Lord, it's hard to tell. But one might also make the case that... Um, you know, Jehoram has had unsuccessful military campaigns against Moab and costly, no doubt. Um, he's also the one, he's also the reason why they no longer have a peaceful relationship with Damascus and now have to have to worry about Hazael. And so, um, so he begins heading towards Jezreel, where Jehoram and Ahaziah are. And you get this really suspenseful scene where you're almost put in uh, Jehoram's shoes. So the watchman sees him from afar. Uh, Jehoram commands that a uh, that a guy on horseback go out and find out what what uh, what the news is. Why this guy's come? Is it peace? And he gives this ambiguous statement: "What have you to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me." And again, the guy, just like the other military commanders, is like, "Okay." 
And then they send out another guy and same thing. Uh, what have you do to do with peace? Turn around and ride with me. And, uh, you know, that could mean Jehoram's reign has been anything but peaceful. So why are we even talking about peace? Or it could be what I am about to do has nothing to do with peace. Because as we will see, Yehu takes this task of, of um, eradicating the house of Ahab uh, very seriously and, in fact, goes way beyond what he's actually commanded to do. So here he's coming, and again, the suspense, you see him riding, and then suddenly the the watchman is like, hey, the, the, the driving is like the driving of Yehu, son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. And now he's got these other guys with him, along with whoever, who knows how many people are, are with him as, as he's making his way to Jezreel. And so Joram gets ready, and uh, he decides to go out in his chariot, even though he's not in the best of shape, presumably. And Ahaziah, the king of Judah, comes out as well. And just to turn the level of suspense up even higher, it talks about how they reach the property of Nabot the Jezreelite. And you might you will recall that that is the guy whom Jezebel had killed in order to seize his vineyard because Ahab wanted that vineyard, um, but he himself didn't really do anything, but his wife sure did, and had him unjustly killed so they could just seize this guy's vineyard. And then the announcement uh, that was made against Ahab and against his wife in uh, 1 Kings 21.19 is thus says Yahweh, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Nabot, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Now, of course, that was given to Ahab, and we've seen that is not the way that Ahab has died, but the blood that ran through his veins is now running through his son's veins as he comes out to meet Yehu. And so he asks, is it peace? And Yehu answers, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? So here, Yehu's stated motivations seem to be religious, right? That she's led Israel astray to, to whore after false gods, as it, as it is sometimes said. And so as soon as he realizes why Yehu is there, he cries out, Treachery, O Ahaziah! And Yehu draws his bow, and it says, at full strength, and shoots the fleeing um, uh, King Yehoram in the back between the shoulders, and the arrow pierces his heart and he dies. And um, they and he orders him to be taken up and thrown on the plot of land that had been stolen from the boat, the Jezreelite. And they do that in order, again, to fulfill the word of the Lord that had been spoken against the house of Ahab. Now Ahaziah sees this, and of course he freaks, he flees, um, but uh, Yehu pursues him and for some distance, and they sh they're able to shoot him as well. And he goes to Megiddo, and he dies. Um, his servants then bring him to Jerusalem and bury him there. And then we're given this uh, interesting verse 29, which is weird because it's a repetition of essentially what we were told in 825. In the eleventh year of Yoram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. Now this verse definitely seems a little out of place, and uh, because, right, this guy has just died, why are they telling us this now? Uh, it could be a purposeful thing to kind of denote his insignificance, uh, as if he never reigned, perhaps the idea might be, or 
or just to remind us of of the tragedy that has been his life since we've seen him. Uh, But another interesting part of this verse is that if you notice, it says that he began to reign in the 11th year of Joram, or Jehoram, the son of Ahab, whereas chapter 8, verse 25, the other place where this statement occurs, it actually says in the 12th year. So what's going on here is likely um, something that's kind of an interesting point of biblical chronology, and that is that there are essentially two ways of reckoning the years of a king of Israel that are used in the Bible, or Judah. And uh, so think of it this way. Let's say you become king, and you become king in the month of May. Well, when your total reign is tallied, do you count May through January as your first year, or do you begin counting in January? Now, we even kind of do something a little bit different than that, right? We, we would say probably May to May, but not everybody counted that way. And so do you reckon those that first partial year, or don't you? And these two systems uh, are called accession year dating and non-accession year dating. And so here in um, in verse 29, it appears that uh, accession year dating is used, um, whereas in uh, chapter 8, verse 25, non-accession year dating is used. Okay, uh, then he uh, enters into Jezreel, and guess who is there? Jezebel, Jehoram's mother. And she paints her eyes and adorns her head and looks out the window. It's not exactly a certain why she gets all dolled up. Um, some have suggested she's trying to seduce him. You know, so it would be like, uh, I could be your queen. Probably not. Um, perhaps all we can say about it is that she simply wants to look as queenly as possible. Um, and the reason why it doesn't seem like there's any kind of like seduction where sometimes you have this motif in ancient uh, Near East where um, a seductive woman is looking out her window. Um, you see that like in Proverbs 7, for example. Um, and the reason being, she doesn't seem to be uh, to be trying to welcome him with any kind of open arms, right? Because she calls out and says, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? Remember Zimri, way back when, he was a military commander who killed his king, Elah, the second and final king of the dynasty of Baasha. And so not only are you a murderer, you are a usurper. And also, Zimri has an exceedingly short reign. He's basically killed immediately by Omri. And so this is not a compliment. She's saying, you're kind of just like this guy, right? So this is an insult. And so he says, who is on my side? And as we saw... People are quick to join Yehu's side, and two or three eunuchs, it says, I'm not sure how many, maybe two, maybe three, look out the window, and he says to them, throw her down, and so they grab her, throw her out of the window, and it's this very graphic scene where her blood spatters on the wall and on horses, and she is trampled, and um, before dealing with that, he goes in, eats and drinks, and then decides, let's let's go and bury her. And when they come out, uh, there's not much of her body left. And this is seen to be the fulfillment of what God had pronounced against the house of um, the house of Ahab, particularly here 
against Jezebel, where Elijah had said in 1 Kings 21-23, of um, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Um, so this is a tragic, terrible end to a tragic, terrible dynasty, the dynasty of Omri. Jezebel, the queen who had caused most of this, most of this tragedy, how many famines, how many wars, how many lost lives, how much persecution against God's prophets and those who wanted to be faithful towards the Lord. Her life now ends in a way that is tragic and devastating and ignoble and disturbing. Okay, let's go over now to Psalm chapter 80. Now, this, of course, is another uh, psalm where we see an appeal to God for help, an appeal to God for rescue. Here, the setting is that God's people have experienced judgment, and they are looking for redemption. Uh, They are looking for God to stand in judgment against their enemies. And it starts off with this really cool way of referring to God. O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock— Uh, Kind of reminds us of Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But this also raises interesting questions as to what is the historical background of this psalm? Because notice, you lead Joseph like a flock. Joseph, that's Ephraim and Manasseh. This is northern kingdom stuff. Indeed, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Benjamin there kind of straddles the border, right? So he could be counted, Benjamin can be counted as southern in some places, can be counted as northern in others. So unlike a lot of the other Psalms, which really do seem to have their provenance in um, uh, Judah, here, this seems to be a northern Israelite Psalm. Uh, Perhaps this is uh, after the destruction uh, that is eventually wrought by the Assyrian army, something that is going to be coming fairly soon in the book of uh, 2 Kings. Um, And so when they are taken into captivity in in 722, that this could certainly be that. Um, But it could be that this psalm is considerably earlier than that as well, because it's not as if that is the only time when the northern kingdom of Israel suffered. So it could be due to, um, you know, some of the stuff that Hazael winds up doing. It could be stuff that other Aramean kings have done. It could be uh, the invasion of Pharaoh Shishak, for all we know, in in, uh, 925 BC under King Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The point is it's very difficult to place this psalm historically. I mean, it's not that unique among the Psalms in that, but, you know, the fact that it's Northern Kingdom makes that stand out and kind of does cry out for us to um, scratch our heads a little bit. Um, now, this Psalm is um, is uh, unique here, uh, particularly in the extended metaphor of Israel as a vine. This is something that is picked up by Jesus in John chapter 15, and usually that's linked to Isaiah 5, which is true enough. But here you have the same kind of metaphor. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Uh, You drove out the nations and planted it. Um, You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. This is Israel coming into the land, right? The mountains were covered with its shade. Whoa, it's a pretty big vine. Mighty cedars with its branches, right? This incredible figurative language, how much this vine prospers under the Lord's care. That is, of course, when it's following the Lord. 
and uh, it, it sends out its shoots. It sends out its shoot. It sends out its shoots <laughs> to the river. Um, why then have its walls been broken down? Right, so vi- a vineyard would be protected um, in a lot of contexts, and so that people can just come in and pluck its fruit. Uh, this is obviously. Um, a figurative language for some kind of military invasion for the carrying away of spoils and things like that. The boar from the forest ravages it. My boars, I think, like to do stuff like that. Um, I'm not going to Wikipedia wild boar, but some of you, I'm sure, know. Um, and all that move in the field to just help themselves. And that is the imagery that is used. And then we get the appeal, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Um, that That's a, an interesting reference there as well. Um, one of the examples of the Old Testament where Israel is called God's son. Recall that the other one is in the book of Exodus when Moses goes before Pharaoh. Um, uh, thus, says the, thus says Yahweh, let my son go. Israel is my firstborn son. Um, of course, this is part of the son... Part of the picture that is in view with the sonship language that is used of Jesus in the New Testament, um, and with this commitment, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Yahweh, God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. Okay, let's look now at Acts 23, 12-35. Paul is still in custody with the Roman soldiers who are stationed there. Um, in Jerusalem, at the garrison there. He was rescued from a mob that was ready to kill him in the temple and has already had the chance to address them. But now we have a number of particularly zealous um, individuals who want to kill Paul, and they make an oath to neither eat nor drink till they had killed him. Now, spoiler alert, Paul is not killed this way, um, which always makes me wonder, like, wow, I wonder how that ended up for them. Um, but there's 42 of them who are willing to do this, and their their plan is to have the chief priests and the elders uh, request to speak to Paul, and then when the soldiers are bringing him down, that they'll just surround them, 42 of them, and, uh, and kill him with their own hands. Um, Paul's nephew catches word of this, informs the centurions who are watching him, and the, uh, the leader— of the uh, of the Roman soldiers there, whom uh, who is identified in the letter he writes here in verse twenty six as Claudius Lucius, uh, we've we've already mentioned that, um, decides to send him by night um, with some soldiers to Caesarea, which of course will grant him protection, and will probably get him uh, an, an official trial that he wants. At least that's his hope. So he's going to send him to Caesarea where the uh, procurator of Judea, who is here called the governor, a guy named Felix, is, uh, is, is, is in charge. Uh, we know of this guy um, by several first century historians. Tacitus uh, refers to him as Antonius Felix. Uh, Josephus calls him Claudius Felix. It's hard to tell which one is correct. Um, but uh, Luke, in, in his telling, just calls him Felix. And so he sends Paul with this letter, and although Claudius is to be um, perhaps thanked for his conduct and his wisdom in dealing with Paul, uh, 
it's it's interesting to see how he his letter is kind of boasty, right? He wants to put himself in the best light. So rather than mentioning anything about binding him and uh, and preparing him to be flogged, he tells him, you know, I learned he was a Roman citizen, and uh, I became his defender, right? He's a he's he's being seized by the Jews, and he was about to be killed by them, and I just came upon them with the soldier uh, with my soldiers and uh, brought him down, uh, trying to figure out what was going on. And now I, I'm sending him here to you um, for his own protection, which is a lot of truth to it. But again, it's interesting how it's kind of framed to put him in the in the best light. Um, he notes that the thing that he, Paul is accused of is violation of Jewish law, because it's become pretty clear that this charge about defiling the temple just is not going to stick. It's, there's no way that that's true. And so now this is a, like a dispute over Jewish law. And the Romans, consistently in Scripture, kind of refuse to hear such matters. They see that as something that either they can't be bothered with or something that they just don't have competency in, and so kind of usually kick the can down the road um, and treat it as someone else's problem. And so when Paul arrives in Caesarea, um, Felix um, asks him what province he's from, and when he learns he's from Cilicia, he decides to give him a hearing there in Caesarea, um, uh, Cilicia is a province where you don't need to send natives there to be judged, all right? It doesn't have that kind of standing, right? Like, oh, if someone from our region is arrested somewhere else, you have to send him home because this is his—he's a native here. Um, also, perhaps, because it's a matter of Jewish law, he might be a little concerned that they might accuse him of wasting their time. So— now, uh, Paul goes off to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium, and, and that's where we leave off until tomorrow. But until then, as always, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.